Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we're going to look at the fates of animals being connected in some strange ways. Whether it be what makes a lion suddenly try to try its hand at taking down a porcupine, through to the strange case of the genes of the narwhals, and what happens with hippos and why, further downstream of the river, hippos serve a very, very important role through the food that they eat. Now, one of the amazing things about life on Earth is that it's incredibly interconnected. Even just something simple like the process of water and the water or nitrogen cycles show how even the smallest life forms like bacteria can be affected by large creatures, even humans or grazing creatures like cattle. But there's another cycle that is essential and critically important for all the ecosystems that thrive in and around the rivers and lakes of Africa, such as those fed by the Great Lake Lake Victoria in Africa. And researchers from the German Research Centre for Geosciences, GFZ, have been studying exactly what is happening with these delicately balanced ecosystems, all of which revolve around, well, there's no polite way to put this, but the excrement, the poo of hippopotamuses, and how important that is just for keeping the rivers healthy. Now, a hippopotamus is a pretty interesting creature. It is a grazer. It feeds on the fresh grass of the savannah. At night, they will eat kilograms of fresh grass off that savannah surface. But during the day, well, they move back into the water. They like to spend their times chilling and relaxing in the rivers and lakes. And they do that because inside the water, they're protected from the sun. They stay cool and out of the way of predators. Pretty difficult for a lion to chow down on you if you're hiding out in the middle of a creek. The interesting part about this is, unlike the other large grazing animals that feed on the savannah, those animals, when they chew and chow down on some savannah grass, well, they stay on the grassland of the savannah itself, so all of their excrement ends up back on the grass. And that means that all of the nutrients, all of the uh, chemicals, minerals, and fertilizer, effectively, from that consumption of the grass stays back there populating and, and repopulating flourishing the grass itself. But with hippos, it's a different case. You see, they eat up a lot of that grass and then they dump it through their excrement back into the river bed. But the river doesn't stay where it is. It actually transports that all the way down through the river system. Which means that you could go in some of the rivers in Africa, like the Mara River, which goes through the Masai Mara National Reserve in Kenya, the excrement then could travel all the way down that river. Well, not all of it exactly, but an interesting part of it, which we're going to focus on right now, and that is silicon. Now, a lot of the savannah grasses are very silicon rich, which you may not think about grass having, but the grass absorbs the silicon from the groundwater, and that actually gives it a lot of strength. It protects it from disease, and and to a small extent, it prevents small animals from eating it because it toughens it. And that's pretty interesting when you look at the geochemical composition of the grass itself. But by actually studying the isotope uh, found in certain types of the silicon all the way up and down the ecosystem, you can trace back the pathway for this silicon journey from the top of the river all the way down. 
And what they found is that a large part of the silicon in the Mara River was actually transported there via a hippopotamus. Now, in the investigated area, which is in the southwest of Kenya, the grazing animals absorbed around 800 kilograms of silicon per day, just through the plants that were eating. And 400 kilograms of that ended up in the water. Now, through a lot of different ecological mechanisms, that means they're responsible for around 76% of the total amount of silicon transported along this 400 kilometer long river. And that's pretty astounding to think about. These hippopotamuses are acting effectively as a silicon pump, pulling silicon out of the ground from the grass and dumping it into the river, transporting it all the way downstream. But why is silicon important? Well, silicon actually plays an important role, feeding a whole bunch of different organisms. For example, silicon is vital for organisms like diatoms, which are unicellular algae which live in the water. And these algae are incredibly useful because they eat this silicon and produce oxygen. But not only that, this algae is the basis of the food chain. Because, well, if there's not many of the algae, then the creatures that eat the algae don't form large numbers. And if the creatures that eat the algae don't have large numbers, and the creatures that eat that and that and that, up to the small fish and to birds, and then up to things like other predators like crocodiles and even hippos, by basically breaking the bottom of the food web by killing off this algae, you can have a huge impact on all of the species above it. And this is a big issue because the number of hippos in Africa has been drastically reduced, mostly due to hunting or the loss of habitats. And that means that a lot of these silicon pumps, these hippos dumping silicon from the savannah into the river system, means there's less hippos there fulfilling that role. And that means that hundreds of kilometers of way, ecosystems are at risk of collapse, mostly because this algae isn't there to do its job at the basis of the food system. And that's also an issue because sometimes if there's not enough silicon, the diatome algae will get replaced with a pest algae, which can form algal blooms, can kill off other species, lead to toxic problems in reducing water quality, and also just not produce oxygen. And if you don't have oxygen in the water, then you end up with deoxygenated water, which can lead to the death of fish. Without fish, well, not only are you killing the ecosystem, but you're also putting at risk human lives because fish in these rivers and lakes are a major food source for the people surrounding them. So it's interesting to think about the different cycles that tie our world together. And another one of those in this specific case in Africa is the silicon cycle, which helps explain how all of our ecosystems are linked together, sometimes through unusual means. Now this paper was published in the journal Science Advances. It was led by researchers from the Helmholtz Center. Now, when it comes to hunting for creatures in Africa, lions seem like they're at the top of the food chain, and certainly they are. But when you think about one of the other creatures that exists on that food chain, 
not zebras, not giraffes, not wildebeests. There's something that's much more dangerous for a lion to square up against. And in fact, most lions that square up against this creature are either starving to begin with or, by the end of it, become even more desperate. Even if they manage to survive the encounter, that is. And what we're talking about here would be a bit of a surprise if you think about it logically, but if you're taken in March Mammal Madness, then this should come as no surprise to you at all. Because when it comes to strange animal antics and combat, well, there's no bigger, stranger case than the debate and the feuds between lions and porcupines. Now, a porcupine is a large rodent, and they're covered with their backs with these very sharp and pointed quills, which are made of keratin, which is the same material that you find in hair and fingernails. But these quills can get to be more than a foot long, 30 centimetres. And porcupines themselves can weigh around 18 kilos, which is, well, more like 83 stoats, if you're measuring it in that metric system. But the issue with porcupines is that they're, they're quite spiky and dangerous when you consider trying to eat them. Actually, really the only safe way to eat a porcupine is to flip it on its back and go for the unprotected underbelly, or maybe the neck. But that's quite difficult and requires a certain amount of skill. So for a large lion or a young lion, the chance of success is quite difficult. Now, there's been stories of fights between porcupines and lions going back well before March Mammal Madness. In fact, all the way back in 1656, an official from the Dutch East Company in Cape Town wrote a record of a case of a group of lions trying to hunt and eat a porcupine. In fact, they found three different lions that had been stuck through with porcupine quills. Now, a team of researchers from Roosevelt University and the Field Museum have put together a new paper in the Journal of East African Natural History. And what they've done here is analyse a lot of these historical records, like the tale in the 1656 journal and videos online in the more modern format of that along with a number of other papers and studies and and old finds um, of lion remains what they've been doing is piecing together some of these cases to try and understand why a lion would go after a porcupine in the first place and they found around 50 different lion versus porcupine battles which they could evidence either with an anecdote or accounts or of certain conditions or remains that they could feast their way through. And what they found were quite interesting. There were several key trends that started to emerge from the data. Now, lions that lived in harsher, drier terrain seemed to rely on porcupines more for food, or at least at times, mostly when other prey wasn't available. And predominantly, the lions that they found interacting with these porcupines were young lions. The older lions didn't tend to bother with the porcupines, seeing them as too much effort. And most of the time, the lions that were injured by porcupines were males. Now, it's interesting in the case of male lions because they're not only taking part of this risky behaviour as young, foolish male lion cubs, but they're also more vulnerable because a lot of the time, male lions are hunting alone, which means there's no assistance there. I Meaning you're facing one-on-one -on -one against this thing full of quills and there's no one here to help you if you do get stuck with quills. So now understanding the conditions, so food shortage, drier, more stress on the food web, meaning the lions were more likely to go after the porcupine. They also looked at what happens even if the lion managed to survive an encounter with a porcupine. So they, what they did was actually study using CT scans the skulls of two lions which were actually chowing down on the humans, are called man-eating lions, from 1965 
One of them had actually been stuck through the nose with a nine-inch quill, and the other had an inch-long segment of quill deep embedded in the pulp of its broken canine tooth. And by using CT scans, the scientists could actually piece together the history of what's happened. Because the scans themselves showed evidence of bone infections, and this would have significantly impaired the ability of these lions to hunt, to eat. If you had a quill through your nose, you can see how it would be difficult to actually smell anything. But also, if you have the remnants of a quill lodged in your mane, biting teeth, your canines, well, you can't really bite or eat anything easily either. So the fact that these lions then, after the porcupine encounters, were even more injured would explain why this, in this particular case of these two lions, which went after humans, why the lions were driven to such desperate measures. Normally, lions would only attack humans if there's no other easier prey for them to take down, or they don't have the ability to hunt in their normal fashion. And scientists know that from 40 plus years of continuous behavioral research on lions since the 1960s, that typically a lion will go after a large hooved animal like an antelope, zebra, or buffalo. But when the time the lion gets down to eating rodents like the porcupine, it means that something has really gone wrong with the local food supply. And when environmental conditions deteriorate, the food web sort of starts to collapse and the lion doesn't have much else to eat, that's only the time it will start saying well, that spiky thing is worth the risk. And even if it manages to survive the encounter, the remnants and the scars of that battle can lead them with a long-lasting injuries that can lead to even more risky behavior and death. So it just goes to show that outside of the realms of March Mammal Madness, these strange encounters between creatures like lions and porcupines do happen. And sometimes the results are surprising. That lions, for the most part, don't bother with porcupines because they know that it's not worth the risk. But if times are tough, they will put their mind to it and try to go after it. But sometimes, even if they're successful, the lions can pay an ultimate price. And this is some great research from the Field Museum, published in the Journal of East African Natural History. Now, casting our eyes from the savannas of Africa and the hippos to the plains of Africa with the lions to another mammal that's in a very different location, that is the Arctic. Now, one of the most famous creatures in the Arctic is, of course, the narwhal. It has a unicorn-like horn protruding from its forehead. But some researchers publishing a paper in the journal Ice Science have outlined just how surprising the current resurgence of narwhals are. Now, normally, when you think of a species being in danger, well, one of the big challenges for them, not just a small number of the creatures surviving, and that is itself a challenge for extinction, but if there's a small pool in a population, that means there's not a lot of genetic diversity. And in general, we find that in order to survive and be resilient, you need to have a lot of genetic diversity around because this gives you a greater chance to have genetic mutations that will help you accommodate and cope with any of the strange changes that might occur. Well, if you have suddenly, for example, let's say a warming ocean, or maybe a food source is now no longer there because it's died off, by having genes in the gene pool of the population that will help you develop a response more rapidly or better cope with that change, it gives you an ability to evolve into that new environment quickly. 
Otherwise, you have to rely on a long, slow process of adaption, or perhaps dying out. And also, having a larger population in gene pool is incredibly useful uh, to avoid genetic diseases. That's one of the reasons why inbreeding in any species is particularly problematic. But research from the National History Museum of Denmark have been trying to understand what's going on with narwhals. Now, at the moment, estimates place the num- total number of narwhals in the Arctic at around 170,000 in different individuals. And that moves them from being on the Conservation Union's red list from near-threatened to least concern. In fact, that happened last year. But when they started to look into the detail, not just the number of the individuals, what they saw is that narwhals are actually all very, very similar. The genetic diversity levels of species is something that they looked at for the first time, such as Associate Professor Aline Lorenzen. Now, compared to other species, it's interesting because narwhals seem to have a very low genetic diversity, despite the fact that they've sort of resurged in numbers. If you compare that to another Arctic species, like the closest relative, the beluga, they have a really wide genetic diversity, despite having similar numbers. Now, instances of low genetic diversity usually stem from inbreeding or a time when there was a bottleneck event. That is when a species sort of gets down to a dramatically small level and only a small amount of individuals manage to survive and rebuild their numbers. But it means they're restarting again from a pretty limited genetic stock. But neither of those things have happened to narwhals, at least as far as we're aware. Now, potentially, the authors of this study suggest that perhaps the onset of the last glacial period, which is you know around 115,000 years ago, may have created an ideal habitat for narwhals, which is probably much, much smaller at the time. And so the narwhal numbers really boomed at that point, but they really didn't need to be that diverse or different. They were sort of trapped in a small area. So the narwhal's genetic diversity has been very low for a very long period of time. So while they're doing really well right now, they're kind of in the best niche possible for them. But that may not be the case for all time, because narwhals may face, like all creatures on Earth, a changing climate. And this climate crisis or climate emergency will impact them too. And if they don't have the ability to respond fast enough for it, that really safe, least concerned population level may quickly become very, very different. Now, for people from Denmark, uh, the narwhal is an important cultural symbol, not just a species of importance to protect from an ecological perspective. Uh, They have had a long tradition uh, of being associated with key parts of Danish culture, especially also around Greenland as well. The coronation chair of the Danish king Frederick III, for example, made all the way back in 1640 is made from narwhal tusks but the key part for denmark is also to make sure the species is conserved going forward in the future that will require careful work that takes into account the reduced diversity of this species so some great work being published in the generalized science by researchers from the natural history museum of denmark this has been the young scientists of australia's podcast lagrange point from hippos helping the rivers of africa all the way to the narwhals in the arctic making sure their genes stay healthy and why lions will turn their hands to trying to eat a porcupine. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.